Good to see you all. Oh, just do some removing. I don't know if anyone's noticed. I don't know why these mini dumbbells are here on the stage. Has anyone? Oh, they're together. This is just to me to do some exercises while I preach or work out. Sorry, I'll stop with the jokes now. Right, if you want to find Psalm 2 in your Bible. Psalm chapter 2, we're just going to look, we're going to read through this whole psalm together and then I'll pray and then we'll uh, talk about a little bit about what's going on. So here we go. The words will appear as if by magic. Here we go. This is Psalm 2. This is from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Don't worry if you've got a slightly different translation, it should all be pretty similar. It says, why do the nations rage? and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me pray. God, on this uh, Easter day, this resurrection day, we thank you that uh, many people all across this country and across this city have an opportunity, uh, a moment where in the busyness of their year, where they're not often confronted with anything to do with Christianity, there's a few special days in the year where your message sounds out above every other message. God, and we want that to be true in this place every Sunday. We thank you that every day is Resurrection Day. It's not one special day. Every day we can celebrate what you've done. But particularly this afternoon, we want to celebrate. We want to sound a message of victory and say that our King reigns over this whole city, over this whole nation, over this whole planet. You're in charge. And we want to submit our lives to you. We want to submit our lives to your Bible, the Word. And we want to let it speak to us this afternoon. Amen. Amen. Now, after reading through that psalm, your first impression might be, what's going on here? (laughs) Why have we chosen to look uh, on this particular psalm on 
this Easter day, and hopefully that will become clear as we go through. I've got three points that we can kind of whiz through. Number one, total opposition. Number two, total victory. And number three, total blessing. Now, first of all, I want you just to think of a moment for, I don't know if you've seen, um, I'm sure you have all seen those kind of movies where uh, an, an army of kind of baddies is assembled. You think like uh, Lord of the Rings or some sort of Second World War movie where kind of the, the armies of the evil forces are all gathered together and they look kind of intimidating and angry and everything about them is kind of dark and in the movies they're kind of deliberately, you know, the, the good people always look a bit brighter and shinier and happier and the bad forces have that kind of slight taint of evil and nastiness about them. And in this psalm, the writer starts by talking about these kind of, uh, these forces of evil, these kind of people plotting against the anointed one. And the language it kind of uses is evocative of kind of an evil army set up against the Messiah. And interestingly, in, in the book of Acts, there's a moment where Peter, who's one of Jesus' disciples, He's gathered the, the early church together in Jerusalem. This is only a few weeks after Pentecost. So the church, this is uh, not that long after Jesus' crucifi crucifixion and resurrection. And this is the very first church. And they're gathered together. And they're under a moment of persecution. And Peter gathers them. And he says this. He says, why did the Gentiles rage, the people's plot in vain, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. What Peter's doing in Acts 4 is he's reading from Psalm 2. He's looking back and he's saying what the psalm has to say wasn't just relevant for the people reading it then, but it's relevant for our lives now. And then he goes on to explain what he means. In the next few verses, he says, For truly in this city, he's talking about Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan are predestined to take place. What Peter's doing is he's, this psalm, Psalm 2, he's linking it back to the, the Easter story. He's saying these people that are plotting this, this kind of rage that's been built up and they want to throw off the cause, things that are holding them back. He's saying, well, that's what happened to Jesus. That Pontius Pilate, that Herod, the people of Israel, the Gentiles, in those four categories, he's basically included everybody. He's saying everybody was standing against God. Everybody was standing against his plan. Because only a week before on Palm Sunday, which would have been you know, last Sunday or the Sunday before uh, the resurrection, uh, they welcomed Jesus in. He'd come into the city on a donkey, and the crowds were singing and celebrating him. Hosanna, blessed is the king. You can read about it in Mark chapter 11 and elsewhere in the Gospels. And then on Good Friday, only a few days later, the same crowd of people have turned against him. This is rage has built up against God the Messiah, the anointed one, and they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. And you could look at it as an observer, and maybe if you're in the crowd on that day, 
Maybe you've been standing there. Maybe you might have been there the week before on Palm Sunday and then found yourself in the center of Jerusalem with the crowd. I guess we probably all would have joined in with the chanting as well. Maybe now, from what we know, we would have reacted differently, but then I'm sure we'd have just got sucked up in in the moment. And we would have probably been looking at this figure and we would have thought, well, surely this is the end of whatever he, this Jesus, whatever he represents, whatever he stands for, surely this is, that moment's gone now. Him and his tiny band of followers, that's, that's all over, isn't it? I'm sure that's what Herod was thinking. I'm sure that's what Pontius Pilate was thinking. Well, that's, that's the end of Christianity. That little uprising, that little disturbance, we can put that to bed now. We can just get rid of that and we can move on. He was just some man with this kind of Messiah complex. But yet, against this backdrop of what seems like complete resistance of everybody turning against God, the psalm actually takes us to a different place. Because it says in verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. You see, I want you to imagine for a second, we were talking about this kind of, uh, uh, these forces of evil, this kind of Lord of the Rings army assembled against God. Have that as one picture in your head. And then imagine another scene, more like a kind of, it's more like a royal banquet, you know, where a king or a queen calls everybody together and they have a big feast, sits them around the big table, they get all the finest foods, they get everything in, and then the, the king might turn to his son and say, ask of me, son, as it says in verse eight here, ask of me, what do you want? And I, I'll give it to you. That's a kind of a tradition, a kind of a banquet. That's what would have happened. The king almost wants to show off his power by giving to his son anything he desires, anything he wishes. And you see, the thing is, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to paint a couple of pictures for you here, but it's important for us to realize that this, isn't, this story isn't like the movies, you know, because in the movies, you've got the, the, the army set against God, and then you've got your kind of plucky hero, but the, the movie will lead you to believe that maybe he won't quite make it. You know he will, because you've seen other movies, and they tend to follow a similar storyline, you know, unless they're really dark. You know, the hero normally kind of wins through, doesn't he? But in the movie, it will lead you to believe that maybe he won't. Maybe this movie is going to be different. Maybe he won't make it. Maybe he won't succeed. You know, in Lord of the Rings, it drags it out forever. You know, Frodo, would you just get on with it? And particularly if you've seen the extended versions, which is like 12 hours long or whatever it is, he's still going and just like, just Gollum's just this tiny, like horrible animal, just poof, get rid of him, throw the ring in the pool of burning, whatever, and then we can move on. But it kind of drags it out and you're thinking, is he going to make it? Is he going to win through? But the thing is, this story, our story, it's not like that at all. It's not like God was thinking, oh, my plan is in ruins. He's not thinking I've sent this savior and now it's disaster. His, the followers, his disciples, Jesus' disciples might have been thinking that, but God wasn't thinking that. He wasn't thinking, well, this is game over now. What are we going to do? Hopefully, maybe we'll pull it out of the bag. Maybe there'll be some kind of victory here, some success. But in, the, in heaven, around God's big banqueting table, around this big feast, 
he sits in the heavens and he, he laughs. I don't mean to say that at the crucifixion God was laughing. There was tremendous sorrow and anguish in that moment. But always with God, there's this sense of peaceful joy that his plans can't be thwarted or stopped. You, you can't just steamroller through what God's doing. And that's what Peter's saying in this, in this passage. He's saying, whatever your hand, your plan that you predestined to take place, God had chosen for Pontius Pilate to make those decisions. God had set this plan in action, and you can read about it. You can read about it in Isaiah. You can read about the suffering servant, this man of sorrows who was going to come, this Messiah who was going to come. The whole of the, New Te- the Old Testament is pointing to this moment. It was in God's plan. God had arranged this for our salvation to save us. And on one hand, you've got this, this kind of uproar and this, this rage of the evil forces. And on the other hand, you've just got this kind of peace, almost joy of God. That he's able to look over the whole of creation and not have any sense of anguish. Sometimes God might, there might be a, a anger from the Lord, but it's a holy anger. It's a righteous anger. You see, you, you might even look at your own situation and think my life's just spun off the rails here this isn't what I planned this isn't what I intended this isn't what God told me to do but God's not he's not rummaging around looking through the blueprints thinking something's gone wrong here we need to reorganize the plan we need to get them back on track I don't know what to do God's perfectly in control he's wonderfully in control because his plan was always always to appoint a king It says here, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There's so much wonderful power in that word, then. (laughs) You see, God chose just the perfect moment in history. God had picked that moment to send Jesus. He'd chosen it out. It says in Galatians, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. It was always in God's plan. He chose the right moment. He chose this moment on which the whole of human history now pivots. It spins around this one moment when Jesus came. His life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension back up to heaven. The whole of history revolves around that now. And that was completely in God's plan. It didn't take him by surprise. He wasn't blown off course. This is what God intended. Goes on to say in this passage, ask of me, I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You see, because on this resurrection day, although maybe these forces of evil have been gathered against Jesus, in the resurrection, we see Jesus' total victory. And Jesus uh, taking up his position as king over all the earth. We get God almost saying to him at this kind of picture of this banquet that I was talking about, ask of me, I'll give you the nations, the ends of the earth as your heritage. Now, think about this. Think of, I want you to think about Jesus' victory in these terms. Because 
Because we get used to victories that, that, are, that are hollow, even victories in our own life when we think we've overcome a situation or we've won through in a battle and then we're back in the same cycle a week later or a month later or a year later. Maybe you're, you're parenting with your kids, yeah, finally breakthrough, you've got it fixed. And then the next morning, you're back in the same pattern. Maybe it's your own struggles, maybe personal things that you've never told anybody about, that you feel like, oh, I've won through and then, oh, no, I'm back in the same pattern. Or we can see a victory that takes place in, in politics or an empire or in, in a government. And we can think, well, that, that's power. Look at that, that's powerful. The thing is, every empire that's ever existed, we could think, oh, maybe the USA, what a powerful empire. It's been maybe the, the kind of the number one superpower for, I don't know, 50, 100 years. But that's nothing compared to the Romans who are around for three, 400 years. But that failed. <laughs> you could go to Rome now and it's a bunch of ruins, really. Every empire has a shelf life, has a season. Its victories, its successes only ever last so long. For this week, uh, Ajax, the Dutch, the Amsterdam football team, they're in the quarterfinals of the Europa League. They beat Schalke 2-0, got the second leg next week. They could win that, they could get to the semifinals, they could win that, they could get to the final. If they win the final, trust me, this city will go crazy. Everyone will be celebrating, there'll be a big parade, everyone will be going crazy, yeah, Ajax have won the cup. But then come August, September, it all starts again. <laughs> Someone else will win it next year. That's how sport works, isn't it? Every year it just flips around. You can win the league and you think over 30, 40 games, you beat everybody, you're the winner. And then a few months later it goes back to zero and you start again. Every victory you can know, you can see, is limited. It only goes so far. It only has so much power apart from this one victory. It's the only victory ever that's not temporary. It's the only victory ever that will last. Because it goes on to say this, it says, you shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, such vivid imagery. You see, it's not just this, this victory is total, but it's, it's completely irreversible. The opposition, like, a, like a, a clay vase, if you drop that and it smashes, you can't put that back together. You can try, but it's, that's going to be hard. If you go, you go to a museum and you see those ones that they've reconstructed, but you can tell that's been broken and there's bits missing. That's what Jesus did. He completely obliterated the opposition. What Jesus won on the cross is irreversible now. And that's true in kind of a global cosmic term, but that's true for your life as well the victory that he won for you. And you might think, oh, but you don't, you don't understand. You, you, don't, you don't know what I've done. You, you don't know who I am. And I say, well, I don't know, but I know who Jesus is. I know the victory that he won for you, and that's completely irreversible. It says in Ephesians chapter one, it's talking about Jesus, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In his death and resurrection, this new kingdom has been created that Jesus has come to reign 
far above and beyond anything else. And I guess a question that you might have is, which would be a very valid question, you might think, well, if, if Jesus is, if he's won this total victory, if he's completely defeated all the opposition, then why is the world, why is life around me in a bit of a mess? Surely if Jesus has won, then this, everything should be fine, should be hunky-dory now. Well, this psalm kind of has an answer, because it says, now therefore, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. See, because what this world often doesn't know, that a new reality has dawned, a new age has come. You know, at Easter we remember, it's not just the death of a revolutionary, we could, his, the tomb's empty now. This victory has taken place, this new king has risen. There was a story in the papers a few weeks ago and they, they were doing some excavations and what some people think is Jesus' tomb and they were in there trying to find something and there's nothing there. <laughs> It's empty. It doesn't actually matter where Jesus' tomb is because he's not there. He's risen. And that heralds this new age. And the thing is, there's still evil in the world. Bad things still happen. We're all aware of that. But we, we know what the result is. We, we, we know what the, the victory has taken place. I've used this illustration before, but it's a helpful one. At the, the end of the Second World War in, uh, in uh, the Dam, Dam Square, they held a big victory uh, uh, party on VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. We'll celebrate it in a few weeks' time. A big party with everybody in the city saying, yes, we've won. We've, we, we've defeated the enemy. We're victorious. And yet they didn't know, up in some of the buildings around, there was a German sniper, and he shot a few people and caused some a bit of a, some chaos to ensue, which is a horrible story, it's, it's sad, but they'd still won. <laughs> they'd still won. The war was still over. And that's a little bit like the age that we live in now. The enemy's still around, he's still causing trouble, there's still sin in the earth, we still stumble, we still make mistakes, people around us still hurt us, life isn't perfect by any stretch, but there's been a victory now. There's been a victory. Simon was talking about it, if you were here last, last Sunday, he said, the, the gospel, the announcement of what Jesus has done, it's not like the half-time team talk. It's not when you get the team in the change rooms at half-time and say, well, let's go again in the second half. We're 3-0 we're up. Let's go and win it in the second half. No, this is the celebration at the end of the game. <laughs> the victory has happened. Now, I guess another question you might ask is, well, what does this, what does this mean what does this mean for me? <laughs> we can talk about Jesus having won this great victory, but what does that mean for my life? What does that look like for, for what I do day to day? Because it, it might, I guess for a lot of people, uh, this Easter day, this weekend, might feel a little bit like uh, King's Day, which uh, if you're a native of this nation, you know what we're talking about. King's Day is the king's birthday, when basically this city goes absolutely bonkers. It's a lot of fun. 
everybody wears orange and, and there's a big party, basically. And we, we, might, we might think, well, surely Easter is just a bit like that. We're, we're celebrating this victory of Jesus, but we all know really that it doesn't really mean anything. Because <laughs> we celebrate the birthday of the Dutch king, uh, King Willem, but we know really that he doesn't really have any power anymore. He doesn't. He could walk into the Tweedekammer, the Dutch parliament, on Tuesday morning, and he could say, I'm going to give the entire nation a complete tax rebate. Everybody's going to get their money back. Woohoo! And nothing would happen, because <laughs> he can't do that. The next day, he could go in and he could say, I know what we're going to do. We're going to invade England, because we've had enough of those English. They're silly Brexit nonsense. We're just going to take it over. They're all going to eat our cheese. No more cheddar. Everyone's going to be happy. <laughs> and nothing would happen. He doesn't have the power to do that. And that's, we, might, we might look at Easter in the same sort of way and think, well, it's nice to throw a bit of a party, but this makes no real difference to my life. It makes no material impact to the world around me. It's just a story from an age 2,000 years ago. Or you might think, well, maybe, maybe Jesus did exist. Maybe there is a God, but he's just this distant figure up there. It doesn't really affect my life. Well, I believe that it, that it does. I believe that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes absolutely everything. Not just in big global terms, but for you. For you, for your life. It changes everything. Because this new kingdom has been announced. This new king's on the throne. And he has set out a new charter, a new plan, a new constitution's been put in place. So what we're gonna do is we're just gonna look at a few things here it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. We're going to look at a few blessings. Blessings of his victory, of his resurrection. Number one, his resurrection, it, it proves that Jesus is the son of God. It talks here about, it says in, in Psalm 2 that he's the begotten son. He's God's son. It, it proves that. Romans 1 puts it like this. It says, uh, and what he's talking about Jesus, and Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of Holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, the Lord, our Lord. His resurrection declares him to be the Son of God. Because, you see, all, all the objections of atheism, anybody that could write anything against Christianity, if you read any of Richard Dawkins' books, for instance, The God Delusion, the big... The elephant in the room with those books, the things that they don't tend to deal with, is the resurrection. There's lots of arguments against Christianity, why it can't be true, why religion's bad. But if the resurrection actually happened, then how do you contest that? How do you stand against that? If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then all the other arguments are completely null and void means Jesus really is the son of God that's a really important question I'd encourage you to go and research that for yourself maybe if you're here and you're not a believer in Jesus maybe you just think this is all hocus pocus well go away and read I challenge you to do that don't don't just not just from hearsay stories you've heard go away and read discover did the resurrection really happen because I think you'll find that it did. Because I've read about it, 
And I've proved to my own heart that it did happen, that it really did happen. And there's significant evidence to prove that the resurrection happened. And if it did happen, for you, that will change everything. The second thing we want to look at, second blessing of the resurrection. So first, it proves Jesus is the Son of God. Secondly, it proves that our justification lasts. What I mean by that, our justification is us being made righteous, being made right before God. It says this in Romans 4. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. See, if, if our justification, by that I mean that, that we're made right before God, that God looks at us and says, you're forgiven. He looks at us and said, the slate has been washed clean. You're forgiven, you're free. You could say that if that was only one at the cross, maybe if we messed up again, it would, they wouldn't work. It, it, we'd, we'd have to start all over again. We'd have to somehow win it, earn it ourselves again. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. If we were looking at our Christian, if we were just here this Easter weekend, we were just celebrating Jesus' death and there was no resurrection, our hope would be shaky. We'd be thinking, well, is he really the son of God? He died, but is it, where's the rest of the story? But we know that he rose and that because of his resurrection, our being right with God now lasts forever because the Bible teaches that if you're a believer in Jesus, you died with him and then rose with him. <laughs> that you're now a citizen of heaven, that you've got this new identity now. That, that the work of, of Jesus isn't just, it's not just the removal of sin and its punishment. We can think of it like that. What Jesus did for me just means that my sin has been removed from me, that he took the punishment that was due for me and we can kind of consider ourselves in like a, a neutral position. And we can, we can often get into that, that state of thinking, well, I'm forgiven, but things are, that my relationship with God is now kind of neutral. I'm forgiven, but I, st I still need to make him like me. <laughs> He's dealt with all the mess, but I, I still need to earn his favor. I still need to, to earn his, his love for me. I still need to somehow win it. We can see it as this kind of neutral work of God. But what happens is, because of his resurrection, our justification is not just the cancelling of debt, but it's what the Bible calls the, the imputing of the righteousness of Jesus, that this exchange has taken place, that Jesus took our sin... And then didn't just leave us in a neutral place, but he's then given us the righteousness of Jesus. It's not God's just said you're just neutral now. He's given us the righteousness that Jesus has. So it's not like you think, well, it, <laughs> that means that, it's not that you just get to think being a Christian means it's almost as though I'd, I'd never sinned because all my sin's been dealt with. But it's, it's as though you've lived a perfect life. You think, well, I haven't lived a perfect life, but 
Jesus lived a perfect life so that you don't have to. And the resurrection proves that that lasts for us. That that's how God looks. If you're a believer in him, that's how he looks at you and thinks they lived a perfect life. They lived a perfect life because of the work of Jesus for us. He's won that for us. Let me describe it another way. We, we can think of, of uh, think about it in financial terms. Think about your sin, your mistakes, as like pushing you more and more into your overdraft, more and more into the red. And then Jesus comes along and just kind of cancels the debt and puts you at zero. But it's not like that. It's like, um, it's like not, it's not that Jesus has put our account to zero, but he's then given us access to his bank account. <laughs> All the riches that he has in his bank, we get to enjoy. All the blessings that he has now are for us. Romans 5 talks about it like this, that we're now kind of kings and queens in his kingdom. It's not like he's just saved us so we can just be kind of subjects of you go over there and you just clean all the dishes. He said, no, you, you come in. Come and sit at this banqueting table. Come and sit with Jesus in his courts, in his temple. Come and enjoy his feast. Come and enjoy all the riches of what it is to know Jesus. The next one, the blessings of the, the resurrection Another one is it gives us this wonderful hope beyond the grave. It says this in John 11. This is Jesus talking. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Just what an amazing promise. Just get your, let me read that again and just get your head around that. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, whoever in this room believes in Jesus, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We get this wonderful hope that goes beyond the grave. This hope that lasts forever. That Jesus said, here's eternal life with me in my kingdom forever. At his feast, around his table Enjoying him. The next one, the final one. There's lots more, but these are just a few I've picked out. Final blessing of his victory and resurrection. That it unites us with his life-giving power. It says in Romans 8, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And through to Ephesians 1, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us in this room who believe according to the working of his great might that worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Very simply, this same power that raised Jesus from the dead that means there's an empty tomb. That means Jesus rose again. That same power of God is now sent to transform you, to equip you to turn your life completely upside down again, to help you to live for him, to help you to worship him, to help you to deal with all the difficulties and everything that goes on in life, to follow him, 
It's not that we're just sort of fighting and struggling against the tide. I wonder if I'll make it through. We've got the resurrection power of Jesus at work within us, within your heart, within your soul, within your life. What I want to finish with is to give you a, an invitation because it says in Psalm 2, it has this funny line where it says, kiss the sun. It's given this, this kind of warning to the kings, the rulers, serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. And then it says, kiss the sun. And there's a couple of Bible stories that can help us to understand this. First of all, there's a story of a lady called Mary Magdalene, who, it, uh, I think we might have the, here we go. In Luke 7, this story of Mary Magdalene, it says she was a woman of the city who was a sinner. Well, that means she was probably a prostitute. And then we'll read, I won't read it all, she goes on. And then she comes and meets Jesus, and she says, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet, anointed them with ointment. It might sound like a weird, bizarre story, but it's an act of total devotion and submission to Jesus, saying, I'm gonna gonna serve you of my whole life. I wanna provoke you today and say, those words, kiss the sun, it might sound a bit weird to you, but what this psalm is encouraging you to do is to recognize that Jesus has won this total victory, that he's won it for you, and there's an invitation to say, I'm gonna follow you, Jesus. And just like Mary Magdalene, it doesn't matter where you've come from, it doesn't matter what you've done or who you are, there's an invitation for you to know God, to follow him. And then another story that helps us understand is uh, the story of the prodigal son, where he's, he, he'd, the prodigal son, had, I'm sure many of you will know the story, if you don't, he'd taken his father's riches, this son, it's a parable that Jesus told, and he'd thrown it all away, he'd wasted it all, he'd, he'd made a mess of his life, and he, he goes back to his father, and he's got this speech prepared, oh, God, I'm so sorry, please take me back in, He's, uh, he's literally just wearing rags. He's ruined his life. Will you take me back in? And his, his father runs and grabs him. He says his father kissed him. <laughs> and, that, and that's a beautiful illustration of how Jesus welcomes each of you. That we can, as it says, this says before in the psalm, we can kiss the son. We can bring our adoration and worship to him. But when you come to Jesus, you'll find that he rushes to you that he embraces you. And just like Mary Magdalene, just like the prodigal son, both of them had made a total catastrophe, catastrophe, failure of their life. And yet this Jesus, this king, and totally victorious ruler of all the nations, embraces warmly, lovingly, tenderly. And for each of you, that's, true this morning maybe you're a believer in Jesus and you know that (laughs) you just you've let yourself down you're just aware of things in your life and you just oh goodness I can't believe I've done that I can't believe I thought that Jesus he wants you to know his 
loving embrace for you. He's completely forgiven you. That this Easter day we get to remember not just Jesus' victory as some event that we can applaud from afar, but it means he's won us to him. That we have this total forgiveness. We have his mercy, his grace poured out on us. And if you don't know Jesus, then you can experience that this morning. You can know him this morning. He can come and set you free. As I said, the resurrection, what Jesus has done, who Jesus is, it changes everything. And you can know that this morning. If you've never known it before, you can know that today. God wants to come and turn your life completely upside down. We're going to finish and we're going to sing a song together, uh, which Len and Joe are going to come and lead us.